welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's menu includes a conversation about Hong Kong, then our first installment of Steve Hess Stories, and finally, part four of our Paris Climate Conference series. Before I get to the show, I want to remind you about our feedback email address. Use bcp at brookings.edu to send your questions or comments to experts who've been on the program, and I'll get them answered in upcoming episodes. My guest in the studio today is Richard Bush, Senior Fellow and Director of our Center for East Asia Policy Studies, and also holder of the Chen Fu and Cecilia Yen Gu Chair in Taiwan Studies and the Michael H. Armacost Chair. He is currently writing a book about the political and economic future of Hong Kong. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you. It's great to be here. First off, uh, let me ask you a biographical question. Uh, You've been involved your entire career with Asia, including Taiwan, China, Hong Kong, Japan, the Korean Peninsula, um, the whole region. How did you first get interested in Asia? When I was growing up, my parents were missionaries in Asia. Um, So I lived in the Philippines for five years as a small boy and then in Hong Kong for five years as in during my secondary school years. The experience of living in a Chinese society for five years led me pretty quickly to decide to do China professionally. Um, and, and though it's part of China, it has a very distinctive political system. Can you tell us more about the difference in its political system and versus China's? Technically, Hong Kong is a special administrative region of the People's Republic of China. When China agreed with Great Britain to uh, transfer Hong Kong back to China, um, Beijing agreed uh, to maintain Hong Kong's capitalist system for 50 years. Uh, As part of that deal, it agreed to um, continue the um, strong rule of law and the political freedoms uh, that uh, Hong Kong had possessed for some time under British colonial rule. Um, and so the Leninist system that we are familiar with in China, with where uh, it's one-party rule, um, deep penetration of certain aspects of Chinese society, is very different from what we have in Hong Kong. The point of greatest conflict is that when Britain and um, China were arriving at this deal, it it was left very vague about what um, mechanisms would be used to to pick the the colony's uh, principal leaders, whether it would be what we would recognize as uh, democratic elections or um, some other formula. And so uh, up until this time, for example, the Hong Kong chief executive is picked by an election committee of 1,200 people, many of whom are loyal to China or follow its lead. That brings us to uh, the present or the last year. Hong Kong experienced considerable turmoil last year, um, especially in the fall. Uh, Can you describe what happened? China decided in 2007 that beginning in uh, 2017, Hong Kong would pick uh, its chief executive through universal suffrage. And those people in Hong Kong who had aspirations for the territory to become a completely democratic system thought that the term universal suffrage meant competitive elections and they would have a chance to come to power. Um, China 
took a rather narrow definition of universal suffrage, um, one person, one vote. But they also specified that the candidates for this election would be picked by a nominating committee. And the fear was that this nominating committee would be as friendly to Beijing as the old election committee had been. And so that it would not, the, the system that would result would not allow all um, segments of public opinion to be represented in who was running, that uh, China would continue to try to control outcomes. And so what did the protesters hope to achieve in occupying the streets for so long? Their demand was that China withdraw the plan that it had put forward for this nominating committee um, and uh, basically start over. Their hope was a, um, uh, a nominating system where there was would be much more opportunity for people on their side of the issue uh, to get nominated. Uh, and so a number of ideas were put forward, you know, political parties picking the candidates or, um, you know, anybody who could get a small percentage of registered voters uh, could run. And that was the impasse. China didn't want to have uh, a um, free-for-all in terms of nominations. So they stuck to their guns um, and uh, the protests continued until uh, about this time last year. I want to I ask you um, what happened next. But first, since we have the image of the protests in our minds, the image that, that is really stark includes umbrellas, thousands of umbrellas everywhere. Can you explain why it was called the Umbrella Movement? In the first days of the protests, which came as something of a surprise to the authorities, they knew something was going to happen, but they didn't know exactly what there was a bit of an overreaction, and they used tear gas and pepper spray. And it was the belief among the protesters that um, if you held up an umbrella, that that would deflect uh, the tear gas and the pepper spray. It became known as the umbrella movement. So, so then what happened? The protests ran their course, I think, through December or so. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened next? There was then um, a lot of debate, and uh, the Hong Kong government had the obligation of developing a a specific uh, proposal um, on electoral reform. And this is where it got interesting, because Hong Kong government, as a subordinate unit of the central government in Beijing, had to work within the parameters of that Beijing had laid down, um, having candidates picked by a nominating committee. Um, But they did something that I think was rather clever. Uh, They, in effect, created a two-stage process where um, the nominating committee picked the people who actually were going to run um, for the voters' approval, but they had a prior stage, let's call it pre-candidacy, where a, a greater number of people, of potential candidates, could put themselves forward, could be um, selected for consideration, um, could present their views, uh, not only to the nominating committee, to the pub, but to the public as well. And this, to my mind, created the potential for what, in effect, would have been a competitive election. 
Um, and if, uh, for example, a moderate uh, Democrat, someone that Beijing did not fear, um, was able to get sufficient support within the nominating committee, then he or she uh, might actually um, get to run. Even if the nominating committee picked people only from the establishment, we've seen another situation, such as Iran, the last presidential election, where actually differences emerge and uh, the candidates uh, turn out to be um, very different and more interesting than you would have thought in advance. So given that, do you think Hong Kong is any closer to democracy or the kind of democracy that a majority of its people want? After this proposal was put forward, it didn't go anywhere. The Democratic opposition had kind of locked themselves in to just 100% opposition. The Democratic legislators, if they stuck together, could veto it, and that's what they did. Let's take a quick break here for the first installment of Steve Hess Stories, in which veteran Brookings scholar and presidential historian Steve Hess tells stories about his life and career in government and at Brookings. In this first installment, Hess recounts how, while serving in the Army, he embarked upon the research and writing of the best-selling book, America's Political Dynasties, from Adams to Clinton, now updated with new anecdotes and stories of the men and women who have made up America's political elite. So why I wrote a book on political dynasties uh, is sort of strange, too. I was drafted. I was outside Frankfurt, Germany, the 3rd Armored Division headquarters. Uh, and one day I went to the library to look for, for something to read. I was trying to look for some things about the Civil War. Instead, I found this great big book called The Biographical Directory of the American Congress. I later waited. It was seven and a half pounds. It had a biography of everybody who had been in Congress in 1774. And I had been a political science major. I knew about the Adamses. I knew about the Roosevelts. I knew about the Tafts. But all of us, as I skimmed through it, who were all these other people that I'd never heard of? The Muhlenbergs, Freelingheiser, and on and on with these families I'd never heard of. I thought, isn't this interesting? And I was in the peacetime army. Uh, I had a lot of time on my hands. So that night I would make little genealogical charts of these people. Uh, just because they were interesting. And by the time I left the Army, I had 300 of them. And the truth of the matter is, the, not only did I not know really about this, but it wasn't taught in schools. It was not, we weren't very much interested in dynasties. But of course, now I'm out of the Army. Now I'm writing a book, and along come the Kennedys. And now the American people are interested in dynasties. So, it, but really, the, the book that came out 50 years ago uh, was probably no grander uh, in its concept than to introduce people to that concept that we had had dynasties uh, and to tell the stories uh, of these people because families are fascinating. I told uh, about the famous ones, but the unfamous ones uh, too. The book did very well. Uh, and the book eventually somebody noticed at Brookings and, and here I am 43 years later. Uh, but in a strange way, last year, it suddenly was 50 year. It would be 50 years in 2016, and that was a pretty good year. It was going to be a pretty good year for dynasties. So the Brookings Press thought so too, uh, and we decided to put out uh, a new edition 50 years later because I'm thrilled just the idea that, that how many people have an opportunity to rewrite one of their books 50 years later. That's what I was doing. I thought I was just going to update it, but it's not. This book is at least 40% new. 
and it's new not just because I had to add families like the like the Bushes. It's new because historians have been in the business for 50 years. You could say, what more could be written about the Adamses? They hadn't been around uh, in politics for 150 years, but they sure left a lot of papers and a lot of historians did a lot of interesting work about them that had to be added. For example, uh, one thing that had to be added that I didn't know when I wrote it the first time was that Abigail Adams was a great businesswoman. And uh, her husband went off to France for year after year uh, during the American Revolution. She had to keep the farm. That was tough. She had no farm laborers because they were all soldiers now, and the taxes were very high to pay for the war. And she figured out a way to do it, to divide it up into sort of a tenant farmery system. But she went into trade as well. How did she do that? Well, John Adams in Paris would send her a scarf, silk star for a silk handkerchief, uh, you know, Lafayette was coming to the United States. He'd say, uh, hey, would you bring this scarf to my wife? And she would sell it. Uh, and, of course, it went at a premium. And then she said to her husband, John, back in Paris, she said, we're in retail. We should be in wholesale. And he said, well, we can't be in wholesale. All those ships are being captured. And she wrote him, literally wrote him, John, uh, if two of three ships are captured, we will still make a profit. And he thought, wow, she knows something that I don't know. Uh, so he was delighted to turn over the business to her. And now, of course, uh, she could adjust it to, uh, to the clientele. Well, we have too many scarves this month. Let's have some handkerchiefs. Uh, and, and since he never worked outside of government for the rest of his life, she was the one who created the solvency of the Adams dynasty. Well, that's a new story. Has to be added. Learn more about America's political dynasties on our website at brookings.edu slash political dynasties. And now back to Richard Bush. Richard, I've heard it said that China feels Hong Kong is the troublesome child. I had thought that China, after it took over Hong Kong, had promised to expand democracy. So what happened and, and what is that relationship like? At the time that China first considered the possibility of regaining control and sovereignty over Hong Kong, which was in the early 1980s, Hong Kong was a very different place. It was focused very much on economic growth and building the economy. It's known as one of the four Asian tigers, economies that grew very quickly in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And the impression one had was that Hong Kong people only cared about making money. And that was certainly the impression I gained living there as a teenager. Um, actually, what was important then was uh, economic survival. But as the time for negotiating reversion approached, as Hong Kong became more and more of a middle-class society, and once you had the tragedy of Tiananmen in China, where the communist regime brutally suppressed protests there, Hong Kong became politicized. It became a very different society from what China thought it was going to get. That came as something of a surprise. Also, uh, China believes with some uh, validity that it has done a lot of favors for Hong Kong in the economic realm. One of the things that is a priority for China right now is the internationalization of its currency. Well, it is using Hong Kong financial institutions to um, test out the various 
steps that have to be taken towards internationalization. It's a, a very complex process. Hong Kong has a lot of talent in financial services, and the two are working together uh, to make this happen. And so the attitude of many in Beijing is, we've done all these good things for Hong Kong. Why are these people constantly demonstrating against us? Why is the central government less popular today than it was before? Why do more and more people in Hong Kong identify themselves as Hong Kong people and not as Chinese? Now, we're not quite 20 years into that 50-year period that you mentioned earlier. Is, do you think there's some fear uh, in Beijing that, I mean, 30 years from now, Hong Kong is going to be com so completely different politically and socially that, that it won't be able to fully do whatever it would want to do in terms of, say, imposing control over Hong Kong? This is a really interesting question. As far as I know, nobody has thought very much about what's going to happen in 2047 when the original agreement between Britain and China expires. By rights, China could impose its Leninist system on Hong Kong, take away all the political freedoms that exist and whatever electoral democracy exists. I don't think it's going to do that. I'm, I'm pretty sure that it, it won't do that because it also gains benefits from Hong Kong. Chinese companies that want to go public would rather do an IPO in Hong Kong than in China because Hong Kong has a real rule of law. And so if you have disputes, you get better justice in Hong Kong than you would um, in the rest of China. It is possible, of course, uh, for China to decide that maybe we don't need to have any finality in 2047, uh, we can extend this and see how things play out. The other reason restraining China is that the formula it used for Hong Kong, which is called one country, two systems, is the same formula that it has consistently proposed for Taiwan. And so the hope has always been that Hong Kong would uh, do well under one country, two systems, there would be a positive demonstration effect uh, for people in Taiwan. If you um, tighten the screws on Hong Kong and make it more of a mainland type of system, then if Taiwan isn't gone already, uh, it will be. But Taiwan has uh, national elections coming up soon, doesn't it? Yes. And, and though um, you've written about the, uh, the Taiwan-China relationship. Yes. Um, and... Um, the last eight years have been good for the China-Taiwan relationship because uh, the current leadership has believed that engaging China up to a point, particularly economically, um, is uh, good for Taiwan and good for peace. We now have an election where the leading candidate is of the opposition party, and she believes that China's intentions towards Taiwan are not so benign and that Taiwan is slipping inexorably into China's orbit. And so Taiwan needs a set of policies that are less China-friendly than the ones of the current administration. I'm going to go back to Hong Kong for a couple more specific questions. Sure. Um, and the first one is about media freedom. Um, we've seen in uh, some news reports recently that Jack Ma, uh, the head of China-based Alibaba, uh, may want to buy Hong Kong-based South China Morning 
post. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that say to you about uh, media diversity and media freedom in Hong Kong? Up until this point, there has been uh, a fair amount of media diversity. And depending on your political point of view, you know which paper to go to to get the sort of reporting and editorial content that fits with your beliefs. And so if you're a member of the Communist Party, there are a couple of papers for you. If you're generally uh, friendly to Beijing, there are others uh, that you would go to. So I'm not worried yet about Jack Ma's um, desire to buy the South China Morning Post. I think that there is a commercially viable market niche for a paper like the South China Morning Post. And to turn it into a pro-Beijing organ um, would only create uh, an opening for somebody else. So it's an interesting development. It, it could have a bad result. Um, but I, Jack Ma is a really smart guy, and uh, he probably knows what he's doing, that this is a way to add to uh, his profits. Yeah, I've seen an analogy that that Jack Ma and Alibaba are like Jeff Bezos and Amazon buying the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. So broadly speaking, uh, thinking about Hong Kong, what are some of the other big challenges um, facing it? First of all, there is the continuing challenge of how you make the Hong Kong economy competitive in a, a global economy that is globalized and uh, constantly changing technologically. How do you keep it competitive This is not uh, a challenge that uh, the United States or Taiwan or Japan is unfamiliar with. There are things that um, smart people in Hong Kong understand need to be done uh, in order to maintain what Bill Clinton called good good jobs at good wages. None of these are easy, but that's the main one on the economic side. On the political side, I personally believe that Hong Kong would benefit from having competitive elections for senior leaders. I think those leaders would have greater legitimacy uh, if they were elected by the 5 million voters of Hong Kong rather than 1,200 members of of an election committee. What about academic freedom? Are there any concerns or issues in that field? There are um, some concerns there, and they focused on Hong Kong University But I think that this is actually a special case. The person who first devised the idea of a campaign of civil disobedience was a professor in the Hong Kong University School of Law. And the dean of the law school protected him, didn't necessarily support his tactics, but he felt that uh, he he had a right to engage politically in that way. What's happened since uh, the protests is that China, frankly, has engaged somewhat in settling scores. It has gone after uh, the people it regards as its enemies, the people who caused all this trouble and who, frankly, embarrassed the central government. Generally, Hong Kong universities are quite open and free. Faculty, particularly in the social sciences, are quite lively, creative, objective. Uh, Some of the best ideas about uh, the direction in which Hong Kong should go um, actually come from people uh, in these universities. Let me ask you this uh, final question. It's actually kind of a two-part question. What's at stake 
with regard to what's going on in Hong Kong for the American people? And what's the role of the U.S. in all of this? First of all, the United States has a pretty significant uh, presence in Hong Kong. Um, There are 65,000 expats. There are over 1,300 American companies that have a presence in Hong Kong, uh, some of them regional headquarters. Uh, It's a good place to do business. There are a couple million, at least, people in the United States, usually American citizens, who have Hong Kong in some part of their background. Maybe their fathers or grandfathers came here as immigrants, uh, and they still have family back there. And so there is a connection uh, between the United States um, and Hong Kong. Second, I think Hong Kong is important for the United States uh, in a number of, of specific and operational ways. As a port city, it becomes very important in things like counter-narcotics, um, counter-terrorism, uh, dealing with money laundering, uh, and so on and so on. Um, and um, we have something called the U.S.-Hong Kong Policy Act that places a lot of emphasis on Hong Kong's ability to maintain its autonomy in conducting a variety of programs. If we felt that um, China had totally corrupted the capacity of the Hong Kong government, we would have to shut all that down and we would be the loser for it. More broadly and perhaps more idealistically, I think that Hong Kong can be uh, a testbed, if you will, for long-term political reform in China. Um, China has a lot of governance problems itself. Uh, Its leadership has always believed that politics should be organized around a dominant vanguard party, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, As the society becomes more complex, as the economy becomes more complex, I don't think that's sustainable. And I think that the Chinese Communist Party is going to have to make adjustments uh, to open up the political system and put it on a different basis doesn't mean democracy in my lifetime, um, but it could mean uh, establishing a rule of law that is uh, not in any way influenced um, by the Communist Party as it is today. Well, Hong Kong provides a good model of how a Chinese society uh, can be run according to the rule of law without Um, leading to great instability. We know that uh, corruption in China is endemic right now, and President Xi Jinping is uh, conducting a major campaign. Hong Kong has established probably the world's best set of institutions for deterring corruption by officials and then enforcing rules uh, if deterrence fails. Uh, China could do a lot worse once Xi Jinping's campaign is over, than to uh, copy Hong Kong's uh, approach. Now, you probably need some other things like freedom of the press and so on. If later on, in in the longer term, the Chinese Communist Party began to think about moving towards democracy in the way that Taiwan moved towards democracy in the 1980s and 1990s, having used Taiwan, uh, used Hong Kong as a testbed, having 
seeing what works, what doesn't work, um, is uh, would be an excellent way to see how to adapt those sets of procedures uh, for uh, for China. So, having a genuine democracy in Hong Kong is good for its own sake. It's good for the people of Hong Kong. It's probably good for their governance. Um, but it also could light the way to a China that is more politically open, more politically accountable, uh, and more politically uh, competitive. In terms of, of what the United States has done in the current crisis, we've actually played it rather low-key and for a very special reason. And that is that the Chinese Communist Party tends to blame whatever troubles it has, particularly in a place like Hong Kong, on foreigners, and uh, that foreigners are somehow interfering in their affairs, creating trouble for their uh, government, and Hong Kong is no exception. Um, we were bad boy number one uh, from China's perspective um, in these protests, uh, working behind the scenes. It's total rubbish. There were American private organizations that uh, were there in Hong Kong and uh, were playing uh, um, a role that they had set for themselves. But the U.S. government didn't want to make the situation worse by creating even more evidence uh, that we were uh, stirring up the trouble. Uh, I think we made it very clear in our statements the outcome that we wanted, uh, a competitive democratic system that would make governance in Hong Kong more legitimate. For right now, um, we didn't get that and the Hong Kong people didn't get that. But in the days and months ahead, perhaps we can provide a kind of intellectual facilitation, um, sort of moving the different factions uh, in the political system towards a better outcome. Well, thank you for joining me today, sure. Richard, and, and thank you for helping us to understand more about what's going on in Hong Kong. Okay. My pleasure. You can learn more about Richard Bush and his research about Hong Kong and East Asia on our website at brookings.edu slash East Asia. And now in part four of our Paris Climate Conference series featuring domestic obstacles to America's global climate ambitions. Hello, I'm Philip Wallach of the Governance Studies Program and the Center for Effective Public Management here at Brookings. Several of my colleagues who have long experience studying climate negotiations have given big picture looks at what the Paris climate talks are intended to accomplish and what they're likely to accomplish. What I want to do is give a comparatively parochial view by thinking in terms of U.S. domestic policymaking, which is my area of expertise. Looking across the Atlantic from the banks of the Potomac tends to make me somewhat more skeptical about the prospects for success, or at least to focus more on the challenges that will have to be overcome. That's because our country's policymaking process has historically not led us to take international leadership on the climate issue. Why not? Well, many people might summarize the issue as Republicans. The Republican Party denies the reality of global climate change, which means it is going to obstruct any costly efforts to mitigate it through emissions reductions. That's obviously a big obstacle, but I'd say it's often overstated. Republicans have supported in the past and could support in the future plenty of policies that would line up with their other priorities and would productively get at global climate change, maybe all the way up to a carbon tax if it could be included as part of a pro-growth tax reform package. 
Yes, as long as Jim Inhofe, the cantankerous senior senator from Oklahoma, remains the chairman of the Environment and Public Works Committee, it's hard to see how Republicans will execute a turn. But there are already murmurs of, a, of new direction at various levels of the Republican Party. More generally, I'd say America's problem is Congress. Remember, even when Democrats controlled both chambers and the White House back in 2009 and 2010, they couldn't find their way to putting in place an overarching climate policy. And it's hard to make the case that Republican obstructionism was the crucial barrier. Back in 1997, the Senate voted 95 to 0 for a resolution disavowing any intention to ratify the Kyoto Protocol if it would impose significant and binding costs on the United States. So Congress as a body has neither provided well-targeted climate legislation nor has it shown much willingness to concede any American sovereignty to an enforceable international climate treaty. And Congress has control over a number of constitutional levers that are hard to imagine working around. The power of the purse, the Senate's ratification of treaties, and of course, the power to craft new legislation. Considering the magnitude of the Congress problem, it is actually remarkable how much the Obama administration has been able to do to address greenhouse gas emissions. The main way they've done that is by teaching an old law a new trick. With the blessing, or at least the acquiescence, of the Supreme Court, the Environmental Protection Agency has interpreted the Clean Air Act to support far-reaching regulation of carbon emissions from automobiles, now a done deal, trucks and airplanes, now in progress, and power plants. That last one in the form of the Clean Power Plan is the single largest component in the country's promises in Paris as negotiators convey unshakable confidence in America's willingness and ability to follow through on it. All this while various Republican legislators, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, have addressed foreign leaders with the message that Congress is not on board with the Obama administration's climate plans. This American conflict is shaping the whole architecture of the Paris Agreement because the core of the negotiated structure must be able to function without U.S. Senate approval, which is unlikely to be forthcoming. But President Obama has recently said that he thinks some parts of the agreement will need to be legally binding. It isn't yet clear how he will square that with circumventing the Senate. Senator Inhofe, for one, is not going to go quietly. He has issued a declaration stating that the U.S. Senate will not be ignored. If the president wishes to sign the American people up to a legally binding agreement, the deal must go through the Senate. There is no way around it. The bottom line, when thinking about climate change policy, one must consider sustainability in two senses. Obviously, we must consider the sustainability of the world's energy consumption patterns given the realities of a changing climate. But we are also going to have to get serious about political sustainability, engineering policies that are robust to shifting political coalitions and that can lock into place durable commitments. For all the progress that has been made to move toward a victory in Paris, I'm not sure that we've adequately addressed this problem yet. It might well be the hardest part of climate policy. You can listen to our recent episode with Timmons Roberts on the big picture of the Paris Climate Talks and listen to the entire series thus far on soundcloud.com slash brookings hyphen institution. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher, artist Jessica Pavone, and online support team of Chris Anichi, Rebecca Weiser, Eric Abalahan, and our intern, Karen Whale-Gurgis. And a special thanks to two of those 65,000 American expats who I happen to know in Hong Kong who suggested a few questions to me. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, 
and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.